He smiles, but they don't know he's showing his teeth. Snarling and starving, ravenous with a grin. He hunts alone, step by quiet step, stalking his prey. Feet soft on the earth, ready to pounce while the mother gathers her chicks close to her breast, safe in her nest. And the babies, they scatter, feet wobbly, bigger in their minds and in their bodies. They're not safe anymore. And they stop to pray, not knowing that prey is the banner they carry. And he sniffs them out. A drop of drool meets the dirt. A drop of blood meets the earth. And downy feathers float in the air. And dusk turns to dawn, and the fox is king, drunk with power, buzzing with blood, always convincing, never culpable. How much blood must spill? The other chicks, they wander. No, they know not what they do, and the hen watches, aching to cover them under her wings, repeating their names, longing to protect them. But that fox is so convincing, so strong, so successful, the kingdom bows at his name. And the wilderness whispers. And the babies, they whimper. And with pomp and circumstance and royal robes, he stalks the weak. He watches and he waits. But they don't know. We don't know. More is never enough. But the winds change And the crown crumbles, and trees bend and do not break, and withering branches spring forth into new life. The fox prowls, but healing prevails. A force of love greater than the power of this wilderness, the kingdom of heaven greater than the kingdoms of this world. The fox is weak in his strength. His strength makes him weak. Drunk on his might, screaming in the night, marking his territory, skulking alone, not knowing that true power comes in the form of a mother. Wings stretched wide, wide enough for the pain of the whole world. For the babies who ran astray, warm enough to cover them all. Sweeping her flock under her feathers, aching to absorb the agony. But her grace is offered, never forced. So she watches, she waits, and she weeps, longing for her little ones to return home. And with wings open wide, she knows that more blood will spill, even her own, her very own. That's my wife. Man. She's, uh, yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed. Uh, Somebody joked with me beforehand that after we heard Kayla, you all would want to throw tomatoes at me, and I think that's probably true. Um, We're in a series called Beautiful, and we're calling that partially because we're being guided through this series with art and different kinds of art. And so Kayla uh, brought some art for us today, some spoken words, some poetry. Last week, Jack Asher painted uh, this picture uh, for us, and it's a beautiful picture. The week before that, Sean Gabrielson, our worship director, wrote and sang a song for us, and we have art scheduled for the next uh, weeks of our series. And so 
I, uh, I just appreciate so much these, these artists who have uh, given their time and energy. It's a really vulnerable thing to create for uh, an audience, to create for your family in some ways. And so um, if you see them, can you just thank them for putting themselves out there for us? I think we've been really, really blessed um, by that. So if you have a question at any point during today's sermon, uh, we're doing this thing where you can text it. So uh, anything about the passage or the sermon that uh, sparks in your mind a question that doesn't get talked about or answered, go ahead and text that number. It's going to be on a lot of the screens throughout the service so that it'll, uh, if you, you, know, you don't have to write it down right now to have it. And then uh, I just try to talk through those questions and give answers where I can uh, and, and on a Facebook video that goes up on Tuesdays. So if you ask a question and you uh, are not friends with the church on Facebook or don't follow the church, I would say you can go do that and then there'll be a video on Tuesday. Um, Your questions are really good. Oh my goodness. When I started this, I thought it would be easier. You guys are making me think deep and wide thoughts, uh, which I think is great. So, but you can text that. Uh, That's not my phone number. That's just an inbox for uh, your questions and uh, I would love to talk through those uh, this week. So, this morning we have reached Luke chapter 13. We've been moving through the book of Luke. Maybe you've picked up a bookmark that's uh, out on the welcome counter for the reading schedule that uh, we're going on throughout Lent. You can grab one if you haven't. Uh, But in our reading schedule and in our Lent series, we have arrived at Luke chapter 13. And that is kind of right smack dab in the center of Jesus' ministry. He has been healing and teaching all over Israel for a few years, and he has uh, developed a reputation throughout the region. Every time Jesus shows up to a new town, uh, people hear about it, and they come out in droves. Thousands of people show up to hear Jesus speak, to hear him teach, and also to get a chance to be healed. He's healing and teaching all across the region, and he has this reputation that has formed. And uh, if you read through the book of Luke, you might get to chapter 9 and 10, and if you're paying attention, you might see there's a a kind of a shift in Jesus' tone. Uh, He's still healing, he's still teaching, but his teachings are becoming more difficult. They're becoming more difficult to understand, and they're becoming more difficult to accept. The people who are hearing them are starting to push back a little bit against Jesus. His good reputation is falling apart in some ways because he is pushing the envelope of what people think about God and the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is teaching, but his teaching is taking on a new tone and a new tenor. And what's happening is that Jesus is beginning to prepare for the end. Jesus has his attention turning toward what is going to happen on the cross. He is preparing now himself and those around him for this journey from where he is in his ministry now to the end of his ministry, which happens on the cross. So I had a conversation with somebody this week who grows grapes, and I thought that his description of grapevines was really helpful for understanding what's happening in Jesus' ministry at this point. He said, the first year that you plant grapes in your vineyard, you let them grow like crazy. Just let them like grow as big and wild as they want to go. The whole thing is just get size for the sake of size. Let the branches go nuts, grow out, grow everywhere. The first year, just let it go. And then the second year, you start to prune them back. See, the first year is about health. The first year is about getting uh, critical mass in some way. But the year after that is about viability for the harvest. 
Viability for the harvest. These are grapes that you want to use in your uh, jelly. Uh, these are the grapes that you want to use uh, in your wines, right? These are the grapes that you're going to harvest. And so your concern is no longer about size. It's about viability for the harvest. By the time we get to Luke chapter 13, Jesus has been doing a little bit of pruning. And the reason is he's looking for viability for the harvest. He's not interested in gathering huge crowds, but instead he's beginning to focus his teaching and energy on those who will carry the message forward once his ministry is complete. He's pouring more and more attention into his disciples and pulling farther and farther away from the crowds. He's changing his perspective because his vision is now focused on the end. There's this new tenor to the movements and the work of Jesus, and it's because Jesus is beginning to think about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the cultural and economic and religious center of the ancient Israelite world. Uh, There was like uh, New York City and the Vatican and Washington, D.C. all mashed into one place. This is where everything happened. Everything that wasn't Jerusalem wasn't that important. That's how it would have been looked at. And so Jesus knew that to end his ministry, to make his point, to put the exclamation point on the work of God, he needed to go to Jerusalem. He had to go to the center of the world, the center of everything that God's people had always been about. This is where his attention was going. And so in our passage today, we find Jesus reflecting on this reality that he is heading to Jerusalem to finish what God has given him to do. We're going to pick up in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So my wife and I were driving somewhere recently, uh, and we saw one of the trucks that says, do not follow into work area. Now, uh, my wife and I uh, have a nonconformist streak, okay? It's a personality quirk that we share. Uh, we don't like to be told what to do, um, ever. And so, it's a real problem for Suzanne. So, uh, we're driving, and we see this truck, and my wife ups the ante. She says something to me that I've never thought of my whole life, and she showed that she is more of a nonconformist than me. She said, every time I see one of those trucks, I want to follow them right into that work zone. (laughs) That truck cannot tell me what to do. (laughs) That's a true story. Jesus basically says that to the Pharisees. You can't tell me what to do. The Pharisees show up at the beginning of this passage and tell him to get out of town as fast as he can. The Pharisees come and say, look, Jesus, Herod, who was kind of the king of the territory that Jesus was in at that time, but was not the king or the controller of the Jerusalem area, they said, Herod, who is in control of this area, wants to kill you. You got to get out of here. Um, And on face value, that's actually really nice. Usually the the Pharisees are uh, not 
helping Jesus at all. Usually they're out to get him. And so in this case, they actually show up and do something nice for Jesus. They show up and say, Jesus, you got to get out of here. Herod is trying to kill you. You need to go to a different place. Now, that's a fringe benefit to them because if he leaves, right, he leaves them alone. But at least they're doing something nice for the first time. And Jesus' response to them is, you cannot tell me to leave. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I have come here for a purpose, and I will not be pushed away from my purpose. He has zero time for the warning of the Pharisees. And he actually ups the ante a little bit from there, because he doesn't just say, you can't tell me what to do, I'm going to do what I do. He says, you can run and tell that fox, Herod, that I'm not going anywhere except for when I want to. He ups the ante by not only telling the Pharisees he's not going to go, but he sends them back to Herod and says, you tell that fox, that sneaky, conniving, dirty King Herod, you can go and tell him that I have work to do. I have healing, I have teaching, and I'm going to start walking to Jerusalem at my own pace. Herod doesn't tell me what to do. And this is really significant Because it demonstrates to everyone who was around Jesus at that time, his disciples, the Pharisees, uh, maybe a crowd that had formed, it demonstrates to all of these people what Jesus already knows to be true. That he has no reason to fear a king like Herod or any other person or power because he is on a mission from God. He says, I'm not afraid of Herod. What could Herod possibly do to me if I am doing God's work? You can run and tell Herod whatever you want to tell him because I have God's work to do. I am on God's time. I'm on God's plan. And Herod is not even in my peripheral vision as I think about the future that God has called me to. He says, I have placed my life in God's hands. So why would there be any reason to fear someone like Herod. He says, I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing, casting out demons, healing people, and teaching about the kingdom of God all the way down the road to Jerusalem. And then he says something about Jerusalem that's kind of weird. He says, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is always talking about moving to his death, and yet nobody seems to ever understand what he's saying. He says to them, I have to get to Jerusalem. I don't care what Herod says. I'm on my own path. I'm going to get to Jerusalem. And you want to know why? Because no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. If you read through the Old Testament, there's a theme that happens over and over and over again. The people of God stop believing trusting and following God. So God raises up prophets to call them back into relationship with him. This is a cycle. It happens time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament. And these prophets usually go to the kings and to the religious leaders of Israel and they rebuke them for ignoring God. Usually they're rebuking them for things like idol worship, for ignoring the poor, for allying themselves with powerful pagan nations. These are, these are things that the prophets say God has no time for. God is not in the business of doing those things. And so you as God's people also can't be in that kind of business. And these confrontations often happen in Jerusalem. Because remember, Jerusalem is the center of the world. 
It's, the, it's New York City and the Vatican and Washington, D.C. all at the same time. It's the center of everything. And so the prophet knows that if you have a message from God to deliver to the people who need to hear it, to the kings and the leaders, you're going to find them in Jerusalem. And that's usually where these final standoffs would happen. The prophet would go, talk to the kings and the priests, and more often than not, the prophet's life would end in Jerusalem. This is a whole tradition, a whole, a whole historical background that Jesus is drawing on when he says a prophet can't die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is placing himself in the long line of prophets who have gone before him. And just like the prophets who went before him, Jesus has spent his ministry pointing people to renew their relationship with God. Pointing people to understand what it means to be part of God's kingdom, to follow God, to be one of God's people. He has spent his ministry trying to explain to people what it means to really worship and be part of the family of God. The kingdom of God is a place where Herod has no power and the sick are healed and the poor and downtrodden are lifted up. That's why Jesus says, I don't have time for Herod. I'm 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 doing God's work. And just like all the prophets before him, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and he already knows what's going to happen to him there. Just like all those prophets before him, Jesus knows that he will be killed for bringing the message of the kingdom of God to Jerusalem. And that causes Jesus pain. That causes Jesus to reflect on this fraught relationship that God and Jerusalem have shared. And when we say Jerusalem, we're talking about generally one place, but we're talking about God's people. This is the center place for God's people. And this is one of those strange places where the line between uh, Jesus the man and Jesus God becomes thin. Suddenly Jesus begins to reflect on this relationship with Jerusalem, and as he says it, he doesn't sound like a 33-year-old man who maybe has been to Jerusalem a few times in his life. As he says this, you can almost see Jesus looking out over the centuries, over this entire relationship that God and his people have had, and you can hear the pain in God's voice as he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed for you. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a moment of deep lament for Jesus. It's hard to read it and not feel God's pain coming out of Jesus' mouth. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I worried about you? How long have I tried to keep you safe? How long have we gone back and forth and forth and back? How many prophets have I sent you? How many prophets have you killed? How many times have I made the first move? How many times have I reached out and gone to you, Jerusalem? How I long to gather you under my wings. There's pain here. 
There's pain. And Jesus gives voice to exactly the kind of pain that it is. And it's a, it's a unique kind of pain. It's the pain of a mother. It's the pain of a mother. So I have a hundred stories of times that I have watched my wife be what we call mama bear. Mama bear. There was the time she turned a three-month wait for a neurology appointment uh, into a three-day wait. That was pretty good. There's been a lot of school meetings that the administrators thought were going to go this way that went this way. Those have been helpful. And there was my favorite, the time that she scared the deputy ambassador to Nigeria. She scared him so bad that he wouldn't call her on the phone. That's a true story. She did that, and I, and, I, and I love it. When her cubs are in danger, she is there to take care of them. She does that, and I'm sure many, uh, all of the moms in this room have the mother bear in them. You all can go mama bear for your cubs. That's, that's good. But in this passage today, Jesus doesn't use the language of mama bear. Instead, he describes himself as a mother hen. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. When a mother hen senses danger, uh, perhaps a fox like the one Jesus mentions in this passage, when a mother hen senses that there is a problem, that there is danger on the horizon, she really literally spreads out her wings and she pulls all the little chicks in. And it's incredible how many little chicks a mother hen can fit up under herself and up under her wings, and you can't even see them anymore. This is the protection tactic of the mother hen, is to draw all these chicks in and underneath her wings. They're safe and sound. They were once vulnerable, but now they are gathered together out of harm's way underneath her wings. And that's very different than what a mama bear does. When a mama bear senses danger, she attacks She mauls, she kills, she destroys, she bends the situation to her will. If if you ever come across a mother bear in the wild guarding her cubs, you should just go the other way because it's this instinct to attack. That's what the instinct is for a mother bear. Every mama needs to have a mama bear inside. If you leave today and think that I said don't have a mama bear inside, I have not done my job. This is an important part of being a parent. It's an important part of being a mother, of advocating for your children. Every mother has to have a mama bear inside. But the truth is, the mama bear does not work in every situation. So, uh, I've talked about it, and, and you know many of you were here for it, but at the beginning of the year, we spent a month in the hospital with my daughter, Eliza. And when we first got there... Kayla jumped right in. She was doing the mama bear thing. She's asking hard questions. She's demanding to see doctors. She's getting Eliza the best care that she can get. She's researching other treatments for pneumonia and bringing them up in conversation. She is doing the mama bear thing. She was making sure Eliza was getting everything that she needed to get better. But what happened was she didn't get better. Instead, even as Kayla fought and clawed to make sure that Eliza was getting everything she needs, and sometimes you do have to do that in a hospital, even as she got that treatment, she continued to get worse and worse and worse. And more and more of my wife's questions were met with doctors saying, I don't know. And more and more pushing for more help was met with, we're doing everything 
that we can. Until eventually, Eliza was put in a medically induced coma and she was depending on a ventilator to live. It just got worse and worse and worse. And all the power and strength and scariness of a mama bear means nothing in that type of situation. There's no one to fight. You can't fight a ventilator. There's nothing to attack. The situation can't be bent to your will. You're stuck in this moment where there's no place for all of your mama bear instincts to go out to attack, to bend a situation to your will, to control or challenge or change. You're in a situation that is beyond your capacity to argue or push or fight out of. All of that is gone. And the only thing you have left to offer is presence. And in that space, I watched Kayla not as a mama bear, but as a mother hen. I watched as she sat by Eliza for hours, brushing her hair, putting lotion on her little body, rubbing her toes and holding her hand. And Eliza didn't know she was being protected. Eliza didn't know anything at that point, but Kayla was there, gathering her up underneath her wings, protecting her, giving her presence, always being there. She was sacrificing her work She was sacrificing her sleep as she spent nights on a hospital couch. She was sacrificing time with our other kids. She was sacrificing living her whole life in order to be there for Eliza, in order to try to gather Eliza up underneath her wings. She was willing to sacrifice everything. The difference between a mama bear and a mother hen is that a mother bear will kill for her cubs but a mother hen will die for her chicks. And that's the picture that Jesus chose to describe his love for Jerusalem, which is the same love that he has for us this morning. He says, I will absorb the attack of the fox. I will absorb the pain of evil. I will become the sacrifice so that you all can have life. He longs to gather us together underneath his wings of protection, to deliver us from death by placing his own life on the line. Because ultimately, that's the only thing a mother hen has to give is her very life. A hen versus a fox is going to go to the fox every single time. But at least it's going against the hen and not the chicks. This is the love that Jesus said he had for Jerusalem and the love he has us. The love of a mother hen is a sacrificial love, a love that puts it all on the line in order to rescue those who cannot rescue themselves. And the most painful part of Jesus using this language here is the fact that even as he longs to gather God's people under his wing, they rejected his protection and his sacrifice. And again, this is one of those weird passages where there's a past tense sense, and there's a future tense sense all at the same time. Jesus is saying, you have rejected me and my protection. You have rejected all the protection that God sought to offer you, and you will continue to reject. 
Even as Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, he already knows what the end of this story is going to be. He already knows that his own chicks that he longs to gather will stand and shout, crucify him, crucify him, that they will turn their back. He knows the rejection is coming, and yet he's moving toward them anyway. Even as he tries to extend his wings and gather his children, he knows that they won't be gathered. But he will still sacrifice. He will still suffer. He will still put himself on the line and place his body between the people and the power of death because that's what the love of a mother, the love of God, does. God's love does not say, I'll sacrifice for you if you promise to follow me. God's love always goes first and always lays it all on the line. Lent is a season and a time to reflect, to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for us. To reflect on Jesus not only as the crucified God, but Jesus as the mother hen. The mother hen who longs to gather chicks and will always place herself on the line and will always sacrifice herself even if, it's, if there's no reciprocity in the situation. Jesus always goes first. As we continue to go through this Lent, my prayer for us is that we could see this vision of Jesus in our own minds and in our own hearts. That we would know That even in those moments where we fail, even in those moments where we feel far from him, even in those moments where we just haven't kept up on our spiritual walk and we just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring and I I just don't feel close to God, even in those moments, Jesus is a mother hen and he's gathering us under his wings. How How much freedom, how much joy are we missing out on because of this view of a God who's angry and apart instead of a God who gathers us together? and protects us and shields us, a God who always goes first, no matter if we are going to reciprocate or not. My prayer for us this week is that we would reflect, that we would let that truth of who God is, this maternal picture of our Father God, that that would seep deep into our hearts and transform the way that we sense ourselves and how we are loved and thus would transform the way that we can love those around us. Let's pray together. God, there are so many pictures that you give us in Scripture. You are our rock. You are our anchor. You are our Father in heaven. But God, here's this picture where you are the mother hen gathering us together under your wings. I thank you, God, that you defy any expectations that we could make up about who you are or are supposed to be. I thank you for your unconditional and unwavering love that always goes first. 
that always lays it on the line, that starts with sacrifice, God. I thank you that even as, as you lamented over Jerusalem, you had a plan to save the whole world through what you would do on the cross. And I thank you that you walked that road knowing what the end was, knowing the pain that was waiting for you, but you walked it anyway because you loved us like a mother hen. God, help us live in the reality of that love as we go out this week. Let it seep deep into our souls and challenge the assumptions that we have about you and let it carry us out into the world so that we can love as you have loved us unconditionally, sacrificially. We are in awe of your love, God. We pray all this in your name. Amen.